You are listening to Keystone Stock Talk Podcast, episode 131. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for stopping by. This podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment, and show notes are found at www.keystocks.com. Come back often, and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at Keystocks and on Facebook or via our 24-hour streaming radio station, pennystocks.fm. And keep submitting your stocks via the usual social channels or at our website, keystocks.com, for our Your Stock Artake segment. And we just might review your stock in an upcoming show and let you know if it is a buy, sell, or hold. To kick off 2021, we are doing a special 2021 predictions episode. Included are predictions on Bitcoin, gold, SPACs, the U.S. and Canadian markets, cannabis stocks, government handouts, Facebook and Google, the pandemic, Tesla, and Brennan's case for and against debate, and much more. At the end, we tag on a question from a listener on Nuvo Pharmaceuticals, MRV on the TSX, which actually just changed its name to Miravo Healthcare. Miravo is a profitable Canadian healthcare company that targets areas including pain, allergy, and dermatology. We let you know how the company screens using our criteria. So let's get right into the show. Welcome to my co-host, Brennan and Aaron. How are your holidays? Good. Yeah, they were great. Great. They were they, they were great. How about yours? Uh, well, usually I'd say not long enough, but uh, like you said, uh, I think we were talking prior to the show here. Uh, we're usually out on the road a ton during the year, so it's nice to get back to family. But maybe we saw a lot of the family this year, so seeing even uh, more. I, of them. I mean, certainly, yeah. Normally in any given year, even just during the holidays, you'd be out. I'd be taking a trip probably to the island to see some family. We'd be doing other things outside of the house, but, you know, being stuck with your family inside or just in the neighborhood for two weeks is great, of course, but uh, don't mind a return to the routine. Yeah, it was crazy. Last year, um, we were talking around the house here, and we had 35 people over here, and this year, I think we had five, which was basically our family and uh, Candace's mom. So that was, it was a, a very quiet Christmas holidays, but uh, still enjoyable. Kids got, you know... Got what they needed, what they wanted, which is great. It was uh, good to go through, and now we're back at it for the new year. So we'd like to start off this year with a couple of predictions from each of us and some associated discussions, if we can get into those predictions. I figured I'd uh, randomly draw out Aaron out of a hat. He can kick us off with one of his bold 2021 predictions, and by all means, uh, explain it for us because I'm sure we won't understand it if it's coming from your mouth. <laughs> so let's start with your first prediction. All right, always very witty, Mr. Irvine. Oh yes. Uh, okay, so my first prediction is that there is a 90% chance that the U.S. market will outperform the Canadian market once again in 2021. Uh, I don't know if this is really a bold prediction. Um, when we look at the historical data in the U.S., uh, the U.S. market, the S&P 500, has outperformed the Canadian market in nine out of the last 10 years. 
And over this period of time, it has outperformed the Canadian market on average by about 9% per year. So this does not include dividends. Um, last year, for example, the US market up 16% compared to Canada, the TSX, up only 2% before dividends. Uh, this is obviously, this seems to be a systemic problem for the Canadian market over the last decade. And we've discussed this as well on our webcasts and with clients. Uh, really what this comes down to is an issue with the structure of the Canadian stock market. So as we've talked about in the past, the Canadian stock market is highly overconcentrated on two sectors, uh, one being resources, the second being financials. In the financial sector, 60% or more uh, is just the big Canadian banks, the big six Canadian banks. Uh, but the problem with the Canadian market is not just where we are overconcentrated in those two sectors. It is more important to point out where we are underexposed, and that's in the area of technology. It really bounces around a lot, but the technology sector in Canada is one of the least important sectors, less than 10%, um, usually about the, the second to last or third to last out of eight sectors. So somewhat unimportant, whereas if we look at the U.S., the technology sector is their most important sector, about 25% of the U.S. market the biggest sector by market cap. And that's really what is driving these superior returns in the US. And I believe that that is going to continue in, in 2021. So one of the things that we did in, the, in our last webinars is we looked at the US uh, FANG stocks, uh, the top five US tech companies. We had Amazon, we had Apple, Facebook, Microsoft, uh, Alphabet, which owns Google. And together, uh, these companies at the time when we did our last DIY, which was in the fall, I believe in October, they were up about 40% on average, whereas the uh, the rest of the, the S&P 500 or the US market overall was up at that time at about 5 or 6%. So uh, technology is really driving this boom in the US. These companies are in areas like uh, cloud computing, like artificial intelligence, like cybersecurity. Uh, really interesting growth opportunities through the pandemic and going forward. So I think this is going to continue. Of course, that doesn't mean we don't have great companies to invest in in Canada. We absolutely do. But once again, uh, Canadian investors also need to look south of the border for great diversification opportunities. Yeah, I like how you broke down the juxtaposition, the Canadian and U.S. market. We talk about that all the time in our seminars and we're going to have some new ones kicking off to start this year, but I love how you talk about uh, the juxtaposition to how the structural, the structural difference between the Canadian and, and U.S. markets uh, really has seen an outperformance in those markets. Of course, um, I do like how you're hedging your prediction at 90%. So there is a 10% chance that Canada may outperform, right? So we can get out of that one by saying there's a 10%. I'm just, I'm just basing and, that on the data over the past decade know, because I, there was I, I one agree. year in the last 10 that Canada did outperform. That was 2016, 17.5% on the TSX compared to 9.5% on the S&P 500. 2016, I'm willing to bet a large, a big part of that outperformance was the boom in cannabis stocks at the time, the only year in the last decade that we have outperformed. Um, but very interesting is that in the 10 years before that, between 2001 to 2010, it was actually a reversal of the situation. The U.S. market uh, 
or sorry, the Canadian market rather outperformed the U.S. in eight out of ten years. Uh, so, bit of a reversal over the last decade. Yeah, well, I, I, maybe if one of Brennan's predictions come true, his bold predictions come true, the resource yep. sector does well this year. Say. Perhaps Canada has a chance of outperforming. Do you want? Do you want to talk about that prediction? There, yeah, that's Brennan? a good segue right into my my prediction. <laughs> hey. So. Such a professional over here. I know how to turn those. You sure that do. is called a segue in the business. You sure You're do. right. Um, so, yeah. So this is going to be sort of in relation to one of my other predictions that I make. Um, but I'm just you know going to say that safe haven assets perform well uh, in 2021. Uh, and that I believe metal and mining stocks will continue to have strength through 2021 because of the amount of money that governments around the world are injecting into their economies, which will push investors to seek out uh, commodities as a hedge against inflation. Um, so I don't have, you know, a big spiel like Aaron did to, uh, you know, support uh, my position. It's just a quick, you know, speculative bet or prediction that I'm placing. Um so yeah, that is... Uh, and we'll hold you to it by the end of the year. We'll come back so, to these predictions. And, and if you're wrong, you know, yeah. Brandon, we'll ridicule you, mentioned... you in, Sorry, Ryan, incessantly. <laughs> well, I said we'll ridicule him incessantly if he's wrong at the end of the year. Or if he's right. Of course, if Aaron's wrong, we won't even <laughs> talk about it. doesn't have to be wrong for us to do that. I'm just kidding. Um, yeah. Sorry, Brandon. So just to, <laughs> just to discuss that for just a second, you, you opened up by saying you think safe haven stocks... Um, are going to do well in 2021. So are you relating safe haven to like hard assets? Like what, what, what are your thoughts there? Yeah. So I'm saying like, you know, I guess any kind of uh, commodity or I guess uh, like, or safe like haven sorry, base assets, metals, did you say? base yeah. metals. Yeah. I, yeah. You know, so base metals, I think will perform well. Uh, Bitcoin, which I know we're going to get into uh, a little bit later here. I think that that's also going to perform well. Um, so that's what I mean by safe haven assets. Hopefully I'm using the, uh, the term correctly. Um, well, I think I that say I what Aaron the, the metals I, and the Bitcoin safe, probably the exact opposite. Although I do get what you're saying. You're, well, and you're, I do make that argument as well. So right. I'm with you there. Uh, but right. we'll get to that in a, in a bit. Okay. Um, I don't want to, don't want to yeah. take away all your smoke here, but, uh, okay. But yeah, in, in terms of, in, you're talking, you're thinking like hard assets, like exactly. metals. Yeah. Okay. I got you. Yeah, and in I terms agree, of the actually, exploration I, I, I side there, it couldn't be more volatile. Yeah, it, sorry, sorry, I'm cutting you. Yeah, well, I was just going to say that in an environment of uh, heavy monetary stimulus with an expanding uh, supply of money, short-term supply of money, I could absolutely, I could absolutely see a scenario where hard assets, inflation like creeping yeah. in, hard exactly. assets. So, so that's, that's kind of the basis of, behind yeah. that yeah. prediction. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. So let me make a, a bold prediction. Uh, we've talked about these assets or this group uh, SPACs uh, before. I will define them in a second, are but I'm going to say the SPAC market. Mm-hmm, they are. We're talking about the spandex market will heat up in 2021. <laughs> that is because, you know, of your purchases, right? Over the holidays. Sure, right? and, yes, and my, we my already own. know. Yeah. Sorry, that, SPACs. Uh, I'm all, kidding. Uh, all. Yes, facts, <laughs> which the market will heat up in 2021, but at some point in 2021, the average SPAC share price will collapse. That's my prediction. So let's just say what are SPACs for most of the audience out there. They are special purpose acquisition vehicles, also known as blank check companies. They are set up with no commercial operations, strictly to raise capital through an IPO or initial public offering for the purpose of acquiring an existing company. SPACs have been around since the 1980s 
And in recent years, they've gone mainstream, attracting, attracting big name underwriters, investors, and raised a record amount of uh, money and IPO money in 2019, only to be smashing that record in 2020. Um, we saw many uh, SPACs go to the market, shell companies with no businesses in hopes of they could find the next big winner in 2020. Popular SPACs this past year, DraftKings, Skills, CII, CII Merger, Virgin Galactic, so- Social Capital is is one of the popular, not over the past year, but it's been there for a while. Um, Perishing Square is another uh, uh, SPAC. Now, just to give you an idea of how uh, much money Uh, The increase, the massive increase of money that went into SPACs over the past year. Well, in 2013, SPACs raised about a billion dollars, one billion in the US. 2014, two billion. 2015, it was four. Then 2016, it was back to three. 2017 was a jump to 11 billion. And then 2018 was nine billion. And the record in 2019 was 13 billion. So it went from 13 billion in 2019. Last year, it went to 70 billion was raised through SPAC. So a massive jump up. Now, Bespoke Investment Group recently talked about the exuberance for SPACs. They published one statistic, which is kind of shows a feeding frenzy here in this segment. Of the 287 SPACs that have come to the market just in the last two years, so a shorter term time horizon, just six are down more than 10% from their IPO price. In contrast, 15 SPACs have more than doubled from their IPO price. Now, in other words, more than twice as many SPACs are up 100% as they are down 10%. Now, that's a sign of exuberance at this point. What I would say is, what we have to look at here, there's nothing special about the SPAC structure that should make that a company that goes public via a SPAC a better or special investment in unto itself. But the returns of late have been special. I don't believe that is sustainable. So why have we seen so many SPACs? We could look at that. Their popularity ties in part to higher U.S. regulation via Sarbanes, Oxley, and the difficulty in taking publics, pu- companies public via the traditional route. It's more difficult today, more regulation, which in some respects is a good thing. But for financiers, if there's an easier route and they can raise capital, they'll take that route most of the time. Uh, the time... This time, many people have said it is different. These are, for me, famous last words. The bull argument here is that there are higher quality people behind these ventures that there were in the past. In the past, only people that could not raise capital through the traditional route used SPACs. So often lower quality individuals or at least higher risk individuals were behind these SPACs. And they're saying today, the bull case says that is not the case today. It's high quality people behind many of these maybe some of them but not all now our advice would be each deal should be looked at on its own merits do not pile into a SPAC because it is a SPAC if I say SPAC one more time I'm going to shoot myself here but anyways historically on average SPACs boom have underperformed traditional IPOs and the better performance uh, this year over the past two years appears to be driven by a few really high profile names which we would argue are trading at astronomically inflated numbers based on their current cash flow. Now, perhaps the numbers will look better with SPACs this time five years out. 
There are some good companies that have come to the market via SPACs in 2020. But again, we always stress this. A good company does not mean they're trading at a good or an effective investment price. Uh, this is, I don't believe the success rate that we've seen in 2020 with these SPACs in terms of looking at the valuations over the long term is uh, sustainable. And that is why uh, we. I believe at some point during this year, you're going to see a deflation or a severe drop in some of the prices of these SPACs on average. There's some companies in this specter, maybe in the electric vehicle space, that literally have zero revenues. There's speculation. It's a hot segment, uh, but uh, you know they have 20 and 10 and $5 billion market caps with no revenues and a promise of future revenues. That is not a recipe for success in the market over the long term. There are some unicorns that do well, but if you, on average, make your portfolio based on companies that are always based on the future and future revenues and they have no revenues now or little cash flow right now, it's not a recipe for success over the long term. And and I think the key takeaway from your 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 talk there um is I love the word SPAC. Is that you love the word <laughs> SPAC, yes. No, but well yes, of course, but uh you know the the next takeaway would be it, it regardless of whether you're talking about an IPO uh, an existing stock, a SPAC, capital pool, a Mac, a Big Mac. No, it, regardless yes. of what you're talking about, it, it it's not. It it comes down to the business that you're investing. You have to understand the business. Yeah. The whole idea of like get on this the 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 big SPAC boom is is really it's 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 probably it's silly one of the because worst the SPAC is just do. a structure. Yeah, like just yeah. you know look at the underlying business, the risks and the opportunities, and. We, of course, invest only in companies that are actually making money that have validated a business model. And it sounds to me like that's not what you would be getting generally with SPACs, uh, you know, maybe one that is. Already I mean, some of the businesses the that SPACs are buying do have a business with operational uh, good operations and some of them are profitable. The problem is when you get an overinflated I mean, it's not even an asset class, but it's a way of going public. But when you we associate that with returns that always go up, you know, ninety percent of the companies or something, and as people hear about one or two great going SPACs up. Then you, that went up and made people yes. their, their buddies a lot of money, and then they're like, "Oh, you you, you know, you got to get into SPACs." <laughs> Irrational exuberance—that's what yeah. you have. So they get you get a good company, but you have it priced at you know 200 300 times cash flow or 400 times cash flow and it has to keep growing at 50 or 100% every year just to backflow backfill sorry all of that valuation that you're getting right now uh, once in a while it can work out but over the long term it is very difficult to grow your business at 50 at 100% year after year after year uh, you're not buying it at an effective price many times when you see a, this when you see exuberance for a, I can't call it a sector, it's just a way of going public, but people are lumping SPACs in together. And you may have a high quality SPAC, but that just means that many people will go to the SPAC route that you probably don't want to put your capital with. And because it'll be an easy rate to raise capital and it has been easier to raise it that way, uh, they become more popular. You get the charlatans in there, to put it frankly, right now. And and that's, I likely would see that at the start of this year, uh, going into this year, and then going forward at some point, that doesn't end well. Good. So let's get to another prediction. We're going to circle back to Aaron. Okay, so prediction number two 
is that the Bitcoin bubble will start to pop in 2021. Uh, so Bitcoin, largest cryptocurrency in the world, the original crypto that everybody started investing in, um, absolutely exponential growth over the past six months. So trading now today, well, well beyond its previous high uh, that was that was achieved at the end of 2017. Um, almost $40,000 US per coin. Uh, six months ago, just in the summer, it was only at about 10,000. So phenomenal growth in Bitcoin. Um, I, I somewhat understand some of the rationale towards money gravitating to non-traditional assets like Bitcoin. Uh, once again, we're in an environment of low interest rates, a very aggressive uh, monetary policy that expands the supply of money or fiat currency, uh, which essentially devalues it um, if it expands too quickly, if it, if it expands faster than the rate of growth in the products and services that you can buy with it. So uh, options like Bitcoin, like gold, are seen as alternatives to essentially holding cash. Now, I'm not going to make an argument here as to whether or not cryptocurrencies have a future. I actually can certainly see a future that involves cryptocurrencies as potentially even important or just, uh, you know, uh, a somewhat marginal part of the of the money supply. Uh, it really depends on a lot of different factors. But one thing that I, when I look at Bitcoin um, that I don't like about it with respect to actually seeing it as a source of money uh, is, is essentially the way that the technology works. It, you have a private key, which is essentially like a, a like a password that you need to use in order to access your Bitcoin and use it. That's that's the way that Bitcoin is structured. If you lose that private key, if you if it is stolen, if your hard drive dies, if it's on a if it's on a um, a USB that you lose, there is no way for you to access your Bitcoin. Now compare that to our existing monetary system, right? Like I'm 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 a banking client at RBC. If I lose my password for which RBC, do, which I do on, on, a, constant a, basis. on a regular basis, <laughs> just uh, I call up RBC, they get me a new password, no problem, or I go into the to the branch. There's no possibility that I lose access to to all of my capital. So this, to me, is a major technological, I would say, problem with Bitcoin. But the reality is, is, is it's actually a feature of Bitcoin. So it's not a bug that you can just erase. It's actually or, or deal with. It's actually a feature of Bitcoin. It's part of what makes it work. Um, but I think that that is also going to be an obstacle with respect to It's time to, we answer a question uh, on Bitcoin your stock. Actually becoming in a little segment a we like to call your stock, the monetary system. Uh, Buy, and, sell, and, you know, or Certainly hold. here in, in Canada, the United States, and the rest of the Western Hemisphere. So... That's a major issue. Just really quickly, I remember hearing a story um, from Wired Magazine when the Bitcoin, you know, first came on the market. They bought a bunch of Bitcoins for pennies um, because they just wanted to learn about it so that they could write and report on it. Then they decided, you know, having Bitcoin uh, kind of impacts our journalistic uh uh, integrity, you know, so we don't want to be biased. So they decided to destroy the keys when Bitcoin was the, the private keys, the passwords, when Bitcoin was worth, you know, almost nothing. Then years later, the price of Bitcoin absolutely goes parabolic. And they're thinking like, well, this is now millions and millions of dollars in Bitcoin, but we don't have the private keys. So their Bitcoin is still there. They can see it. It's still there, but they don't have the private keys to access it. They did whatever they could 
to find out if there is a way that those keys could be recovered, recreated, so that they could access those many millions of dollars. I don't have the exact figure, but it was a lot of money. And they came to the conclusion that it was impossible. So this is Wired Magazine. They have access to a lot of, you know, technological people that should have been able to help them solve that problem. And that just shows that there, there, there's an issue here when it comes to um, the, the technological feasibility, how normal people could use Bitcoin. Of course, um, I'm not gonna keep going on with this, but of course, one solution to the problem is that you have Bitcoin exchanges, which kind of work like a bank. Um, but then once again, they would hold your private keys and you'd be able to access it, you know, through this exchange, which is somewhat like a bank, the way you would access your money through a bank. Um, but then you're essentially defeating the entire purpose of cryptocurrency, which is to decentralize the control of the currency. You're now centralizing the control of the, the currency. It's an attack vector. These exchanges have been hacked. There is one story a couple years ago where the, the owner of one of the exchanges had all of the keys in a, uh, in, a, in a laptop that was in a briefcase that was handcuffed to his wrist. He ended up dying of a heart attack or something, I can't remember. And anyways, all of those keys were lost, hundreds of millions of dollars um, lost, I remember essentially. hearing about that story. Yeah, yeah so it's just, it's, there, there's a lot of problems to figure out. Uh, and, and I just don't think that Bitcoin's there. So that's my prediction. At some point in 2021, we're gonna see, you know, at least a 30% decline in, in the price from current levels. Yeah, I mean, I, and I think, uh, you know, it's not that, like, we make our real predictions, to be honest. I'm going to step back for a second and say make our real predictions uh, every year and every day based on our recommendations to our clients via our stocks. That's our real recommendations or predictions for the year. I mean, we thought we'd come together and do some topical predictions today. Uh, Bitcoin, whether it goes higher or lower this year uh, or, or five years from now, um, Aaron, went through a great case for Bitcoin there either way on it. Um, I mean, there's some arguments that can be made of scarcity around it because there's only 21 million Bitcoins that can be mined. Uh, however, as I understand too, Aaron, you can talk to this as well, that Bitcoin's protocol uh, can or may potentially be possible to be changed to allow for a larger supply, as far as I understand. I believe but, so. Listen, I'm not I'm yeah. not like the, the, the technical expert on Bitcoin. No. Uh, the way that I understand that it works, um, there is a small group of developers that are seen by the Bitcoin community as, as essentially the ones that are leading the development of Bitcoin, so they can make um, modifications to it. The problem is, is that they don't make those modifications it's not their choice. They can make those modifications, but then it's the decision of the Bitcoin community whether or not they're going to um, follow those new protocols. So if they make put in new protocols or features that the Bitcoin community or half the Bitcoin community doesn't like, you can basically then you, you split it in, uh, in half and, and you now have two different cryptocurrencies. That's the way I understand it. It's kind of like, you know, they're the leaders of a big parade marching down the street and the the marchers in the parade will follow them only if they think that they're going only if the they think the leaders are going in the right direction so the leaders can decide to take a turn but if the if the people in the parade don't want to follow they can then just start you know going any direction they want so mm -hmm. that's the way i understand how it works once again i'm the i'm the guy you talk to about uh investing in individual stocks um, not about the yeah. I mean, and, and that's our thing. Like, if the the reason we don't make any recommendations on Bitcoin is because we can't value it. If we can't look at an underlying cash flow 
from a business or an asset, then we cannot value that asset. Thus, we don't want to put out any recommendation on it. Um, if you want to look at Bitcoin as safe haven, if you want to look at it because you believe it, there's going to be tons of inflation and it's a, it's a digital hard asset, and, and Brennan will talk about that in a second, I believe. Yeah. Uh, potentially, that makes sense as a small part of your portfolio, but Overall, for us, if we can't value it, we're not going to make a recommendation on yeah, it really ex- either way. Exactly. And I think there was like that really good quote by, I, I believe it was Warren Buffett who is saying, you know, if you buy Bitcoin, you're literally just betting that the next person in line is going to pay more. Uh, exactly. You, you know, because yeah. again, there's there's no real value to it. And as I am going to be going into my prediction Utility here, other than maybe a store of value, but I mean, that's just not really, it's not creating anything. Exactly. But it's but, it, but it's I would question even the story value. I mean, right now Is, the value yeah, looks it, great, but you know, uh, I'm saying that's the argument. Mm-hmm. I, so, I, don't, so, I don't I don't believe. No, I think that you're you don't actually have to saying that it. that is yeah. what it is. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Anyway. That is it, and that's what I believe. Yeah. Oh, no, funny. I know the crazy thing is on both sides, there's people that are just absolutely dogmatically, you cannot change their view. Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies are the greatest thing ever, and you're silly if you don't think they are. On the other side, too, as with many things in our society today, completely against it, think it's the most ridiculous thing ever, and it's an absolute Ponzi scheme. So you have these two extremes on either side. Um, for us, we just, if we can't value it, it's not good for our clients to make a recommendation on it. If we can value it and understand the business, understand the asset, where the cash flow comes from, that is how we have success over the long term. Stepping outside of that is not a smart thing in investing. And if you think it's a currency, well, we don't we don't invest in currencies. We invest in businesses. So yeah, certainly exactly. we're open to looking at uh, Bitcoin, crypto companies that service that sector in any way. Um, as potential recommendations Uh and we do and we have so far we have not found anything that uh passes our profitability criteria but we are always looking exactly yeah and it's the same with the cannabis space i mean as soon as we found profitability we had some very profitable recommendations now in the space but it took some time to get to that uh now uh, Brennan, do you want to go with your second prediction? Yeah, there? so i'm going to continue on with uh bitcoin and again like ryan was saying um you know, this is an investment advice. Uh, you know, we we cannot value Bitcoin. We have no idea. We're equity analysts. Uh, this is a currency, essentially. Uh, so keep that in mind as I am on it? the long side <laughs> of Bitcoin. So my prediction here is that Bitcoin uh, will not replace gold as a safe haven investment in the near term, but will continue to have strength into t- into the end of 2021. Again, not a buy recommendation. Okay, so Bitcoin has been on an absolute tear in the recent months, reaching and now surpassing all-time highs that were made back in late 2017, right before the crypto bubble burst. But this time, I believe the rally isn't so much fueled by extreme speculation, but rather endorsements from Wall Street. Well, I guess you could still make the argument that it's being fueled by some speculation here. Uh, But again, Wall Street is uh, backing it. Uh, with the largest asset management firm in the world, BlackRock, stating that the cryptocurrency could one day replace gold as a go-to safe haven investment. Uh, And the reason being is because it's more functional than passing a bar of gold around. Well, I would argue that you don't have to pass a a bar of gold around to uh, invest in it. 
Anyways, uh, another firm also said this, JP Morgan, uh, and they recently placed a long-term price target on the virtual asset of $146,000 US per one coin. Now, I have no idea how they came to that. Can valuation. I just stop you for one second? How did they get to 146? That, Why not 147? Exactly. Why not Who 145? I really want to know that. I really want to <laughs> see the analysis behind that. Yes. Why not 147.2? And unfortunately, it was just, you know, a nice headline that they made on an article. Uh, so c- continuing here, you know, first things first, I want to... <laughs> I want to look and see is Bitcoin really, you know, a safe haven asset and how it stacks up to gold here. So um, looking at how uh, Bitcoin and the S&P 500 relate, uh, as well as Bitcoin and gold, we can look at the correlations between these assets. Now, just to remind listeners, a correlation of one between two assets means that the prices uh, of those assets move in perfect unison. A negative correlation means that the prices uh, move in the opposite direction. And a correlation of zero between two assets means that there is no relationship between them. So keeping this in mind, uh, Coindesk research shows that over the past 90 days, Bitcoin had approximately a 0.25 correlation with the S&P 500. So a pretty low relationship and almost no relationship with the market here. Uh, And Bitcoin and gold had a correlation of about 0.4. So we can see here that there's little relationship between Bitcoin and the S&P 500, while a stronger relationship between Bitcoin and gold. Uh, So Bitcoin is certainly behaving uh, somewhat similar to gold. But now I personally have some skepticism around Bitcoin surpassing gold as a safe haven asset. And this is why. So number one here is that there is still demand for tangible gold beyond use as a currency. So um, I just need to find the source here. So the World Gold Council, uh, as well as Thomson Reuters, uh, estimate that 54% of all gold in the world is used in jewelry. So, you know, people are actually wearing gold. There's demand for people putting it on their bodies, uh, as well as uh, about 10% of gold is used in technology. Uh, Many people don't know, but all of our phones have a little bit of gold in them. Um, And then, of course, you know, like Bitcoin, uh, gold can be used as an investment or, or currency in the barter system. So my second point here where I think that uh, uh, Bitcoin will not surpass gold as a safe haven asset is it's still very volatile, uh, which is not exactly a characteristic an investor wants in a safe haven asset or currency with annualized volatility for Bitcoin of 62%, whereas gold is about 23 and gold actually just came off of, you know, a, a really hot year. So I believe that this would be lower in a normal year. Um, Now, Bitcoin's volatility may decrease over time, but I do not believe that this will happen anytime in the near future just because there's so much speculation behind it. So now my prediction for Bitcoin is that in the near term, it will not replace gold as a go to safe haven as safe haven investment. Uh, You know, and I would even say even over the long term, I I don't believe that uh, it'll it'll, you know, surpass it as a safe haven asset. but because of the argument behind scarcity, uh, the continual you know printing of money that uh, the world uh, economies are doing around the world, uh, I believe that Bitcoin will have a strong year in 2021. Again, not a buy recommendation, uh, but I do not believe that it will falter below its 2017 highs uh, through the end of the year and end up somewhere between uh, 40,000 to 50,000 dollars US uh, per one Bitcoin. 
So you're thinking between zero and uh, about 25% return. Yeah. Again, mm. not a buy recommendation. <laughs> I need to make sure. <laughs> yeah, I I'll tell, I'll tell you anecdotally, uh, twice at the start of this year, I've had uh, people come to me um, th that had got recommendations from their uh, financial advisors uh, from two of the big banks in Canada uh, that had uh, recommended them putting between one and four or five percent uh, of their portfolio in cryptocurrency or Bitcoin. And, um, you know, so that's that's increased demand at the start of the year. It can, you know, th that could be driving what's going on if that recommendation is going out there right now. Not not exactly driving what's going on. That could be contributing to the positive segment there. If uh, some of the larger asset managers in the country are now looking to put, you know, one to five percent of your portfolio, I would suggest if they really did believe in Bitcoin, why put one percent of your portfolio in it? I mean, it just really is me meaningless, even if the crypto doubles you know you add one percent in terms of returns but that really just jives with the way that the traditional asset managers in canada build your portfolio it's one or two percent in each asset and they're just going to try to get what the market does charge you that fee and underperform which is what we talk about in our seminars our diy seminars all the time but anyways that's an aside there is i've seen anecdotally anecdotally a couple times this year for the first time some of the you know, larger asset managers potentially adding you know, Bitcoin as an option within just your average Canadian portfolio. So um, I'm going to look at my second prediction here. It's on cannabis. It has two parts, the cannabis segment. I'm going to say A would be continued consolidation and some opportunities in the U.S. market due to favorable regulation environment and positive investment sentiment there overall. Uh, B would be consolidation in Canada, in the Canadian cannabis market. There should be some share rollbacks or consolidations this year uh, and further pain in many names. But there is, I believe there'll be a couple winners, couple winners that start to emerge. Whether that happens at the start of the year, by the end of the year, I'm not sure, but there will be some winners. Uh, I'm going to comment quickly because we just went through all 3,500 companies in Canada. There's almost 200 Canadian cannabis stocks. Some of them are doing business only in the U.S. Um, many of them are here in Canada. Uh, generally, I would say the capital structures of the Canadian stocks are terrible. Most of them have too many shares outstanding and too much dilution in terms of options and convertible debentures. Uh, we see some good growth there, but I do understand it was at certain points difficult to raise capital in the segment. So it has led to this structure. But on the flip side, there's been other times over the past three years that it's been downright easy to raise capital in the cannabis sector. So there's for me, there's really little excuse for the frivolous issuance of shares and options for CapEx and acquisitions that most companies in the segment have been known for. In many cases, we saw initial financier teams, finance teams, basically, that were behind these companies that were in the game they call it, to line their pockets with little regard for creating strong financial structures to enrich shareholders long term. We do see some Canadian companies now that maybe have some better operators in them, and that's what we're looking at. Now, many U.S.-based and Canadian-listed companies share continue to share this pattern, though. There are some notable exceptions, though, in the U.S. market. 
like uh, for example with our top pick over the past year in the sector true leave which has jumped now over 200 percent for our clients in just over a year uh, and again, like I said, we've been recently looking at a few other U.S. names and a few Canadian names that are breaking into profitability. Most are highly valued, but there may be a couple opportunities that appear in 2021. We still think the U.S., there are as overall, uh, there's some pricier names definitely right now, but there's some upside in some good companies there. Yeah, and of course, one of the challenges, I mean, there's no better way, I'll just say, of getting a, getting a sense of what's going on in the market than just starting at the A's and going through every single company. Uh, that's That that really gives you a sense it, of, it really of is. And where's the like, revenue going, where's the profit going, what, what are the valuations? Yeah. You get a good idea of the balance sheets, what's happening, what, you know, are, are the strict producers, are they integrated companies, like for any sector, but I'm talking specifically for the cannabis sector now, you get a really good idea where it's going. And when you do that, and we just completed that, you know, you come up with a few names that stand out uh, on the negative side, also a few names that potentially can stand out on the positive side. So we should have some, uh, you know, uh, we, it also confirms the companies, the couple recommendations that we currently have, it continues to confirm that they're, you know, leaders in the segment and uh, is why we've seen tremendous returns in them over the past year. And I think we picked an opportune time to start getting involved and actually buy companies in that segment. So do we have another prediction from Aaron? Do you have another uh, bold prediction? I do. I have one or you just final t- prediction. Okay. Um, I'm actually Excellent. very excited like about it. this one. I'll, I'll just go We're through it. We're on our pins and needles right yeah, now. I'll just, I'll just go through it and my analysis of it really quickly. Uh, this uh-huh. prediction, I'm predicting that, that Brennan is going to lose at least 75% of his stock <laughs> debates on the podcast in 2021. Mm. Um, so yes. let's look at the numbers here. How do I break this down? Well, the way I see it, um, I'm more than, more than likely going to be judging 50% of Brennan's stock debates i'll be the judge he'll be debating against you so right so there 50 percent. that'll be lost. against me and and let let me just say he'll be against me so come on whoa, whoa well i think it come on. really I, come on. i'm thinking it had more to do with me being the judge but yeah. uh, <laughs> and, and that i i'm lining your pockets ahead of it whoa 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 <laughs> highest bidder here you know whoa. i've uh yeah yeah so with the other 50 percent, he'll be debating against me I, I only need to win half of those, just over half of those, and then my prediction becomes true. Um, and Brennan, Brennan's loss rate for the year is over 75% um, if I win over half of my battles with him. Um, and, and, you know, I think I can do a lot better. I think that, you know, with some work, we can get Brennan's loss rate up to 85 <laughs> to 95% this year. Oh, I love uh, it. And I'm excited I'm willing about to work, it. I'm willing to work on that with you. I'm extremely I'm excited. Lost on that. <laughs> lost rate. Well, I hope for my sake that uh, that prediction doesn't come true. And uh, we'll talk off air, Aaron, to uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. talk some, some numbers. Brennan's going to try and intimidate. Do you have a third prediction? I, I like that prediction. I'll go with that one. Do you have a third prediction, Brennan? Yeah. My last prediction is just that uh, by the end of 2021, I do think that the pandemic will be in uh, the end of sight or the, the end of the pandemic is in sight, sorry. Uh, and that I'll you know be anticipating to leave my apartment. Um, you know, and I just think that because the vaccine rollout is currently underway, uh, and in the next few months, we should see uh, more companies like Johnson and Johnson add their own vaccine to the worldwide rollout and distribution. Uh, you know, I think that, uh, 
somewhere at the end of 2021, uh, you know, things are going to look bright and we're going to go into 2022 uh, very happy. And uh, yeah, I'm going to consider leaving my apartment. There's a, the craziest part about that is you actually considering leaving your apartment yes. in the best of times. So, yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, what can you do? considered doesn't mean it's actually going to happen. <laughs> it's yeah. true. It's true. Yeah. I mean, I, I would, yeah. I would agree with that prediction actually. Um, you know, assuming the vaccines work as expected, mm-hmm. I believe that the idea was that by the fall, um, the vaccine would be already, you would think that millions in Canada would have received it. Um, but that it will be available um, in the fall for anybody who who wants it. Yes. Whether you're high risk. Yeah, or not. It, it would certainly be nice to get back to some semblance of normalcy. It would be awesome. So I can get behind that. Can I go to uh, my third prediction? You bet. So in the second half of 2021, a strange phenomenon will occur in Canadian corporate earnings. Many companies will report higher revenues as the economy opens up further from the COVID lockdown, but profits will dip as CEWS or Canadian Emergency Wage Programs will finally, finally end. A figure will become known. It'll be EBITDA will suddenly become EBITDA, and I stress the DA part at the end. The new figure will be called earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization, and unrealized handout one, handout two, and handout three. Most analysts, however, will somehow buy into this. Uh, the biggest impediment, though, to this production actually come, coming true is that it relies on the assumption that in Canada, handouts will end, as Trudeau seems to love just shoveling out newly minted Canadian dollars for votes. And many of his supporters, including younger Canadians, who are the ones who will be most hurt by the massive debt the increase that this has caused appear to blissfully support his unlimited funding. Any thoughts on that? I, I think it's great. I think it's it, mm-hmm. it brings up a, a really interesting point, and that's that a lot of companies that have been reporting over the last couple of quarters um, have reported higher profitability margins uh, because they've been mm-hmm. getting those those government subsidies. The uh, the I, I can't remember what is it the wage subsidy the wage subsidy CEWS exactly yeah, Canadian yeah. emergency so, um, wage subsidy it's there but they're not you know if if you dig into the statements if you dig into the into the um, commentary you can find some mention of it um, but a lot of times these companies don't break it out it's certainly not right at the top of the press release where they're bringing people's attention to the fact that 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 is uh, buoying the profitability, but certainly when it goes against them, it'll be right up at the top of the press release and, and highlighted. Oh, so, it will be. It will yeah. be. That's why I think we will have the EBIT duh, and that's what we'll call it there. Um, I, as an aside, I think we really should do a show on this, but we, again, I said, we just went through the statements of thousands of Canadian companies and they're very curious numbers in there. Like some businesses, you know, you have, uh, you have, uh, flat or they're down in terms of their revenue slightly or even flat revenues and the profitability is significantly up and hidden in there and it is hidden at times is the CEWS payment. Uh, This is a stat, this is an aside that I found. Uh, The Financial Post did some analysis on the 68, there are 68 companies that received, public companies that received over a billion dollars in CEWS, Um, 68 of them, 11 introduced a dividend or hiked existing dividends in the quarters that they received CEWS over the past year. I mean, that is fairly shocking in that, you know, had 
these companies were subsidized to the tune of a billion dollars in total, and they were either introducing a dividend or hiking an and hiking their existing dividend as they were receiving CEWS payments. That does not seem correct, and and uh, you know it's. Like I said, I've said a couple times, I initially, like the Canadian government could not be both quick and correct with their response, given the uncertainty and the gravity of COVID. But by the summer of this past year, the government had a chance to get it right or make the subsidies more appropriate. Instead, they just went on essentially extending it. And uh, we're seeing some strange numbers in some of these companies that you really have to adjust out and, and some money that went to some businesses that really did not need it which is not what that was intended for. But if you hand out that money and if they qualify for it, the way that companies run and you know they have their shareholders will demand that you take that money essentially because their competitors will take it and get a leg up on them over the long term. You have to responsibly have those programs issued uh, in an effective manner. And I believe the Canadian government had a chance to do that in the summer, four or six months in. And uh, it just wasn't done. Uh, they love handing out money. So it has to be done responsibly. Everybody loves to get money, but you know somebody has to pay the piper. The bag gets filled up in terms of debt. And uh, you know I feel for our children that we'll have that debt on their backs and higher taxation. And we could go on and on about that. But do you have any more predictions, the two of you? Uh, no, I think that, uh, oh, I, I, I actually predict that most of our predictions will be, <laughs> yeah, I predict <laughs> at least half right. of our predictions, let's say will be wrong. No, I, I, 50% honestly, will I, be wrong. I think Amazing. that you made, you made a good point earlier and that's that, um, you know, this is really just a, a thought exercise. It's a little bit of fun. Yeah. And then we try and actually apply some, you know, some, some good analysis and rationale to it. But, you know, it's really just about fun. Um, you know, it's it's we're not here to make macroeconomic predictions. Um, with my prediction of Bitcoin, if if you if somebody has you know a small allocation to Bitcoin, you know you don't need to change that necessarily. Um, but if you but if you have eighty percent of your portfolio in Bitcoin, you might you might want to listen to what I said. Although of course, if Bitcoin doubles from here, you'll you'll probably we'll delete that me. part. Of the yeah, show, exactly. <laughs> um, so it's not about me predicting. Uh, it, it, it's about, you know, it's really, it's it's probabilistic. Like, what do I think is the most likely scenario? Not saying this is going to happen. It's like, what do I think mo is mo more likely to happen than not? And, uh, um, you know, when it comes to really big macro predictions, I think that you should expect people to be wrong at least 50% of the time, possibly more. Now, now, can, can I add just a couple right at the end here? I'm, my number one prediction here is that the U.S. Supreme Court will issue massive fines for Internet giants, Facebook and Google, for privacy and anti-competitive violations during the course of this year and order the businesses to be split up. It's a bold prediction. But then they will promptly reverse the rulings after the justices find out that both companies have easy, easy access to their browsing histories. So... That is my big prediction. We'll see. Yes, it's incredibly hilarious. Number two would be Elon Musk will call uh, Tesla 50% overvalued at some point this year. The stock will initially drop, yet it will then proceed to double at some point in 2021 for inexplicable reasons. 
So those are my two funny predictions, although they fall flat because there's not a big audience listening. But I'm sure everybody at home right now is peeing themselves, right? Brennan, I'm sure. you probably sure. have to change your shorts, right? So Yeah. Yeah, I'll actually But uh, those are my two predictions. Well, I, I my have biggest no prediction predictions. All my predictions. Oh, were come serious, on. Especially what? the one about Brennan. Well, your Brennan prediction was pretty that was actually pretty funny. that was very serious. No, we no, no, that was just that was only funny. That was only funny. Uh, yeah, obviously. My I biggest prediction. Brandon, if I have to, you know, be dirty about this, about him, about about uh, boosting up his his loss rate. Yeah. By yeah. me being the judge. I would so. say that just my advice and prediction right now. This is what we would give at all time. I think that valuations in the market generally are higher at the higher end. If you're nervous about entering the market right now or building your portfolio. Uh, again, using our structure that we talk about in our DIY portfolio uh, seminars all the time, it's a 15 to 25 stock portfolio built over a 12 to 24 month period. If there is a correction at some time this year and you start, you make 2021 the year you're starting to build that portfolio and five months in there's a correction, you've probably only bought five or six of the stocks that you're building in your 1525 stock portfolio. Uh, we think that's the best way to structure it. It'll prevent you from buying or crystallizing your entry point at one point. You're buying quality businesses that you want to own for two to five to 10 years. So over the long term, we think those businesses will perform well, regardless of where we are in the current market cycle right now. That would be my biggest piece of advice going into this year, how you structure your portfolio. Make sure you the composition is there, building over a 12 to 24-month period, and, the, and, the, and the, what you put in it is the composition, sorry. That is the most important part of your portfolio in terms of the quality of businesses at reasonable prices that you put in your portfolio. And that's what we're gonna talk about with our clients all year and anybody who wants to become a client. Uh, we had a great year last year. Um, we expect to continue to employ the same type of research that we did over the course of the last year. I hope everybody enjoyed our predictions show. We'll reconvene sometime in December and see how we did on those predictions. If, uh, Of course, that's only if they, they look good. But no, we'll, we'll reconvene and definitely talk about those predictions uh, in December of next year. So quickly before the end of our podcast, let's get to Nuvo, uh, or now it has a new name. What's the new name there, Brendan? Moravo Mur Healthcare. Yeah. Quit calling it Nuvo. It's time we answer a question on your stock in a little segment we like to call Your Stock, Our Take. Buy, sell, or hold. Yeah, so I'll take it away here. So it was Nouveau Pharmaceuticals. Now it's Moravo Healthcare as of December 18th. And the ticker symbol is MRV on the TSX. So it's currently trading at a price of around $1.06 and has a market cap of about $10.4 million. Um, and the question came in from Andrew via Facebook. Well, Andrew, uh, as Ryan was saying earlier in the podcast, we actually just completed a clean sweep through every publicly traded company in Canada. And Moravo was actually a stock that I came across, and I can say that it initially screened well, with my preliminary analyst notes saying that it has good growth, it is profitable, and it has a net debt position. So let's take a look at the company. Now, Moravo Pharmaceuticals is a, uh, or sorry, Moravo Healthcare is a Canadian healthcare company uh, with 25 products that target areas including pain, allergy, and dermatology. To name a few products, they include Cambia for pain, 
Blexton for allergies or rash, uh, and then also Canadian distribution rights to results, which is for head lice. And then they also have some worldwide rights and royalties from licenses with other drugs. Um, now, keeping my previous analyst notes in mind, starting from the last quarter, which was Q3 of 2020, Moravo's 12 trailing month revenue growth was about 40%, which is solid. And adjusted earnings per share was around 75 cents per share in the last 12 months, compared to a loss of 94 cents uh, for the same 12 months last year. And as well, adjusted EBITDA of approximately 31 million for the last 12 months. Uh, so operationally, the company does look positive. Now, Moravo has a net debt position of about 90 million and a net debt to EBITDA multiple of about 2.9 times. So it is getting up there, but not too concerning. Uh, and lastly, the stock is trading with an enterprise value to EBITDA multiple of about 3.3 times, which is very attractive if the company can continue to grow. Now, looking at the growth opportunities going forward, one of its primary drugs, Blexton, is gaining market share against its main competitor in the space, which is positive, gaining about 16% of the market since its launch in uh, 2017. And this trend is continuing. Uh, as well as Moravo's manufacturing facility is at about 25% capacity, which could support future growth. Uh, and the company can still outlicense many of its drugs around the world. So there's opportunities there. Um, but you know, if one were to be considering an investment in Moravo, it would be crucial to get an idea and a full thorough landscape uh, of the licensing deals uh, and for how long uh, you know, these licensing deals are expected uh, to, to go. Um, but I can say that in their MDNA, they said that they have a pediatric version of Blex 10, uh, which if a regulatory decision will be made in mid 2021. So that could also help growth going forward. So now to conclude here, Moravo looks very interesting, although debt might be getting to the higher side of things. Uh, the business has shown good revenue growth over the past 12 months, has posted positive adjusted earnings and trades at a reasonable enterprise value to EBITDA multiple. It's definitely a company that I'll be keeping my eye on and possibly digging into a little further to get a thorough understanding of the business and uh, the drugs that they sell. Yeah, and this is what we do, continue to look at uh, businesses as they evolve over time. I believe we have a conference call set up with management. Uh, we do many and many of these. Many of them end up with uh, no uh, investment recommendation. Uh, but if you know if it continues to grow, if it continues to offer a reasonable price and we understand the business, the uh, length of time that they have uh, with a patent on those drugs without um, without competition going forward. Those are all the things we look at when we look at a business like this. Uh, and if we can understand the debt structure, whether or not that is uh, sustainable over time, those are things that we like to look at. And uh, we'll continue to follow this company and see if it fits our criteria over the long term. I'd like to wish everybody a happy new year. Keep your questions coming in to our Your Stock, Our Take segment, our Ask Us Anything segment, uh, as well as if you want to do a case for, case against, uh, tell us. And if you got two companies from a similar segment to the market, you want us to pit against each other, we'll, we'd love to do that again this year. It's a segment that got some rave reviews at the end of last year. We're going to continue that. Uh, again, I, everybody stay safe out there. And I wish you profitable investing in 2021. Thank you. Profitable investing. Happy New Year and thanks, everyone. <laughs>